0: I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has produced a refugee crisis. Another one, that is. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees reports over 80 million people have been displaced globally, including over 26 million who are refugees. According to the UN agency, and I quote, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar account for two-thirds of people displaced across borders. The war in Ukraine has produced millions of additional refugees. Many are being welcomed around the world, as they should be. But as news media and states treat the Ukrainian crisis differently than others, a question lingers. Who gets to be a migrant and where? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Keti Nivyabandi, Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada. Okay, let's start by unpacking the terms we'll be using throughout the conversation since, you know, on this topic, we all share a handful of words that we use when we talk about this issue, but we don't all think of or mean the same thing when we use them. So what do we talk about when we talk about an immigrant, a refugee, a migrant? or even an expat, an expatriate?
1: I think that's really, really crucial to talk about, because we do use a lot of these terms interchangeably. And some of them actually have a legal definition. They have a definition under international law, and then others are much more casual terms. So it is really important to be able to distinguish between them. Let me talk about a refugee and perhaps an asylum seeker and a migrant, because those are Closer to legal terms. Um, so a refugee is simply a person who has fled their country because they face serious risks of human rights violations or persecution. So let's say you live in Sudan or, or in Canada and there are major human rights violations ongoing. There's a context of a crisis, for instance, uh, and you are at risk and you know that your life will be in danger if you remain there. You have to leave. You therefore become a refugee. So it is someone who has left their country because of that, because their government is not able to protect them from those dangers. Now, an asylum seeker is a person who has left their country, so therefore a refugee, who has gotten to another country and they are now seeking protection in that new country. So if you go back to the previous example, let's say you fled Canada, you know, at risk of human rights violations, you end up in, say, Guatemala, and you're asking the Guatemalan government to protect you, to provide you with state protection under the Geneva Convention. You therefore become an asylum seeker by virtue of having submitted an asylum claim. And seeking asylum is a human right under the Geneva Convention. So uh, anyone should be able to enter another country and seek asylum. So that's, that's an asylum seeker. Now, when we talk about a migrant, that's a less legally defined term. We certainly, uh, many international organizations and agencies uh, like Amnesty International understand migrants as people who are outside their country of origin and who are not asylum seekers or refugees. So some of these people may have left their countries because they want to work or study in another country or they want to join their family. So the term expat that you were mentioning earlier would actually fall into this category. But others also feel that they have to leave their country because you know, of uh, levels of poverty, for instance. Mm. They're not able to make a living that sustains them and their family. Or there are other uh, circumstances like natural disasters as well which make it impossible for them to leave there, but they're not facing persecution. So that's maybe the distinction there. So they don't necessarily fit the legal definition of a refugee, but they still would be in danger if they stayed in their home countries. So I think what's important here to understand is that just because they don't flee persecution, they're still entitled to the same human rights protection that any individual is entitled to wherever they go and the countries in which they end up still have an obligation to protect them and protect those human rights. Those are sort of the definitions that I can offer you. And it's interesting that you were talking about expats, for instance, then you you begin to realize that maybe expat is a term that is more loosely used, Mm -hmm. but tends to be used to define people from the global north and majority um, are white folks, who are in uh, global South countries and have come there to seek a better life, have come there to seek either job opportunities or or any other opportunities to stay in that country, but are then seen as expatriate. And it's really rare to see it the other way around. There are a number of Africans, for instance, who are in the global North for professional reasons, but rarely do you hear them being defined as expatriates. So. Uh, there, I think you get into the most subtle narratives around who is an expatriate, who is a migrant, who is a refugee, and what does that person look like uh, often.
0: As we were sort of discussing before we started recording, I mean, I, I was saying that I lived in South Korea for 18 months, and you know, when I was younger, teaching English, and we were expats, right? This is, we just thought of ourselves as expats. People called us expats. We didn't interrogate that term. We didn't really think about it. It wasn't until much later that something sort of pointed out to say, well, that's what you call white people, you know, in the bluntest way possible. Mm -hmm. And it didn't even occur to me. But then, of course, as soon as it did occur to me, I just saw it everywhere in the way that we frame those communities. And it's a point that travels beyond just the expat community and the the expat incidents of of migration because the sort of racialized framing of people moving across borders becomes an extraordinarily live and important issue when we are looking at refugee crises, people fleeing conflict zones. And that's where I want to get into a current concrete example and how states and the media frame them differently. And I'm thinking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that's been processed in the media space and the political space in a different way from the Syrian refugee crisis. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how you've seen those two crises play out differently across states.
1: I mean, I think many of us who are watching the Russian invasion unfold in Ukraine, watching it, but of course, with great concern were appalled to see the media coverage of Ukrainians leaving their countries as refugees, as I described earlier. And hearing those media reports, the description and the narratives, we heard journalists talking about saying that these are people who look just like us. These mm-hmm. are people whose lifestyles are similar to ours here in Europe, as opposed to to whom uh, mm-hmm. is the question that was left hanging. So we saw incredible levels of solidarity, which make me proud of us as human beings. You know, and this is how we should be welcoming refugees globally, people in need. However, they were in stark contrast with how refugees who are as deserving from other countries and other crises, and here thinking, of course, of the Syrian crisis, which was the most recent in 2015, but not only the, the Syrian. Uh, There's another great crisis that is unfolding in the Mediterranean Sea that is rarely spoken about, particularly in Canada, where you have African young men, women, pregnant women even, who have been trying to arrive at the shores of Europe and have died in the Mediterranean Sea due to draconian measures that are put in place to ensure that they do not arrive in Europe. And we see even coastal guards who are actually, uh, who have the mission to turn them down and keep them at sea. And incredible numbers. I don't think we yet measure the tragedy that is fully unfolding in the Mediterranean Sea today and the number of people who have died. I think last year we were looking at numbers above 1,000 in the first half of the year, but that is an approximate number. So uh, when you see the measures that are being put in place, the draconian border measures that are being put in place and that have been put in place by Europe towards refugees who are coming from either the Middle East, from African countries, from Southeast Asia, and you compare them to the welcoming of the Ukrainian refugees, you cannot help but realize that this is a contrast that is based on, on racial lines. Mm-hmm. And, and that is unacceptable. That is appalling. And that is an absolute violation of the right to not be discriminated against. So I think the question that you pose is an important one. Because behind these policies, there are also narratives that have been constructed over time. And when we speak about, when we see the Syrian refugees um, leaving their countries, we spoke about crisis. When we see African people who are on the move, we talk about mass numbers Mm -hmm. or mass invasions. You know, that vocabulary that we use is also important. I have not heard these words used so much uh, for Ukraine. What I have heard instead is a need for us to mobilise in order to support and to help these people in need. So the contrast in narrative is really, really important. And uh, it leads us to... And this is where you see racism underpinning uh, migration policies and refugee policies uh, when you see these very stark uh, differences. And it's really uh, critical that we interrogate these forms of racism that are unfolding and that we name them in order to to fully address them. I think the same can be said to a large extent here in Canada as well. When you analyze visas that are afforded for uh, people who are coming from African countries versus those who are coming from other Parts of the world, you Mm -hmm. see stock differences or processing of resettlements as well. We you see differences there as well. So there's no doubt that racism as a construct is underpinning a number of these global policies and that it needs to be fully addressed.
0: And to your earlier point, just to to reiterate it, I mean, this isn't to say that we shouldn't be processing and, and treating with respect and welcoming. Ukrainian, white Ukrainian refugees is that we should be treating everybody the same, right? It's funny because there's a this liberal narrative of equality that underpins a lot of what we do. And we turn around and just very plainly treat people differently based on racialized lines, right? And so the argument is, well, if you're going to apply that sort of universal standard, uh, then you need to apply it equally, otherwise it's not a universal standard, right?
1: Yeah, every individual, every human being deserves the same rights. That's the foundation of human rights and the, and the Declaration of Human Rights is that every individual should be afforded the very same rights. And so therefore, everyone has the right to seek asylum, mm-hmm. and everyone has the right to be treated the same. And now every state will have its own policies. Right. However, if you do have a policy, you must be coherent across the board. So If Canada, for instance, has a policy of an open door policy to refugees, as it has done in the case of Ukraine, we've seen incredible measures being taken, including very rapid processing of applications from Ukrainian refugees, uh, resettlement opportunities that we haven't seen with any other refugees from any other countries. And I think what is key to say here is if we can do this for Ukrainian refugees, and we must do it for every other mm-hmm. refugee, right? We're not disputing the fact that it should be done. It should be applauded and done across the board. But we have to do it for everyone. Yeah. We can't just do it for those that we feel closer to, we feel a closer relationship with, or a certain affinity with, right? We need to be able to do it to everyone. And even when we feel that affinity, question ourselves, what is the basis of that affinity? and what leads us to treat some people differently than others. So I certainly hope that Canada will be treating uh, the next uh, conflict and and refugee situation with the same diligence and and heart and solidarity as it it has for Ukrainian refugees.
0: I hope so too. And and anybody who wants to see the sort of variety of exclusions, I mean, there's a sort of soft and subtle exclusion like we often practice in Canada. And there's the more overt exclusion which we saw in Poland the government effectively said, well, there's a kind of refugee we prefer and we're worried about integration and so on and so forth. And just and that was it. You know, anyone who's listening wants to go have a look at the Polish response. It gives you a very particular sense of, of how that variety of exclusion might happen. And, and, and then, of course, there are things like, you know, the day that we're recording is the day that the government of the United Kingdom has announced its plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda to be processed those who are coming across the channel. And when you were talking about the Mediterranean, it made me think of that. The United Kingdom is applying that same standard and that's been denounced pretty much immediately.
1: So it's really key that you're highlighting these issues. And it's important as well that in the case of Canada, for instance, Canada's relationship with Poland, Canada needs to speak out on these um, double standards as well. So, first of all, Canada should not apply them itself, but it also right. needs to denounce them. When they are being applied to other countries like Poland, a lot of support right now is going to Poland because of the Ukraine crisis, but it needs to, Canada needs to be able to denounce these appalling facts that are happening.
0: And especially, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that point because we have a history in Canada of taking asylum seekers, taking refugees. We have a history of of providing aid elsewhere, but I get a sense that sometimes we sort of say, well, we can pay for this problem over there and not welcome as many people here. I think I'm back to the Harper government and support for Jordan for refugees. And there was a sense then that it was, well, we'll just farm this out. You know, It's easier for us. It's less politically charged for us, problematic for us if we just farm this out. And I wonder to what extent we need to be shifting the discourse here to say, look, it's very good that we're providing resources for this to happen globally, but our own numbers need to improve too. It's not enough just to have this happen somewhere else and say, okay, well, we'll we'll bankroll it. But you know, you sort out the settlement details locally. I wonder to what extent do we need to welcome more people here?
1: No, that's an excellent point. And I would say that it's not in Canada alone. I think Sure. Most of the global north, it's an issue there. We see it a lot, particularly with Europe and using Libya as a, as a stopping ground for migrants who are coming from African countries and, and trying to push border policies that, from Libya already and, and sponsoring that. So I think one key thing to remember that often when we, you know, we talk about these, uh, these issues and we talk about Canada's record, uh, I think it's important to remember that. 85% of refugees around the world are in so-called developing countries. These are largely in the global south. The countries that have the largest numbers of refugees are, are countries that are themselves often still managing a number of challenges internally. And when you look at the numbers for Canada... They are, you know, I would want to say almost ridiculously low in comparison Mm -hmm. to other countries, let's say a country like Uganda, which has welcomed about a million refugees and in in Canada we're talking about less than 100,000, sometimes less than 60,000 as well per year, so it's important to put these things into perspective and give it the right proportion as well. You know, countries like Jordan, Turkey, Sudan, Lebanon, Bangladesh, you know, who welcomed the Rohingya refugees during that the Rohingya genocide and have done so to a large extent in questionable manners because they have deported a number of refugees to, a, to an almost unlivable island, but they have welcomed over 800,000 refugees. And these are countries that are still struggling with their own internal infrastructure. So I think what you're saying is really, really important um, and really key. Uh, we do need to think about how to broaden the gap and really how to shift, again, that narrative. And when we hear it things like a refugee crisis for Canada or mass numbers at Canadian borders, we need to put these things into perspective and realize that that is simply not true. It really just doesn't measure in any way what is happening around the world. We have over 26 million refugees right now around the world. And the bulk of the protection work is being borne by Global South countries.
0: And to give people a sense of that scale and and to give them a sense of what some of the numbers look like, I mean, Lebanon, for instance, I remember being in Lebanon during the Syrian refugee crisis early-ish on, and it was something we were paying attention to here, but it was we weren't doing nearly enough. You could see the effect in Lebanon. You know, several years later, Lebanon has something like 1.5 million Syrian refugees for a country of 6 million people, give or take, right? I mean, they give people a sense of scale. That's 1.5 million people from Syria in a country of 6 million. I mean, in Canada, we're talking tiny numbers compared to that, right? I mean, and by the way, I say all this by way of thinking not just of global conflicts that are currently exist from the, the sort of typical uh, issues of autocracies and, and imperialism. We're also going to be facing climate refugees before, for, before. well, we're facing climate refugees already. We're going to be facing them even exponentially mm-hmm. greater numbers in the years to come, which is another reason we need to be wrapping our heads around this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. It's all. So Canada is a global leader when it comes to resettlement. That means when you go back to what I was explaining earlier around the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker, resettlement is for individuals who have refugee status in one country, but an agreement has been made for them to be resettled to another country because our original country doesn't have the capacity to host them enough or they're still not safe in that country. So Canada leads in that department in the resettlement. And I think this is what has made Canada enjoy such a A positive reputation around refugees is that, uh, so we settled around 32,000 refugees per year. And that leadership or that level then often I think obscures the broader, the bigger picture which we were just talking about. So yes, that's 32,000. And that's more than many other uh, global North countries are doing by far. However, it is out of a pool of 26 million refugees globally. So again, really important to put that into perspective.
0: Yeah, I want to take a brief historical perspective here and, and raise, I think, a question we don't typically ask ourselves in this country. And that's, you know, we owe something to human beings as human beings. I mean, my argument is we have an absolute moral duty to human beings as human beings. That's premise one. But premise two is that given that much of the conflict that's generating people moving across borders, having to flee, originates in Western colonialism, imperialism, and Western invention intervention in the 20th and 21st century, does the West not owe something on top of what that basic duty is? I mean, and what does that obligation look like? Because, you know, to put it bluntly, the West has historically and, and contemporarily contributed to the mess that is driving people from their homes. And uh, that's going to include climate change because we're such climate gluttons and uh, disproportionately produce carbon emissions. Does that not imply that we owe something even more on top of the rest of the world and certainly more than the global South?
1: So I think you make a, a very, very valid point. I think you're making a moral point, yes. which is still absolutely valid and absolutely important. From a legal perspective, you know, we all have the same obligations. Every country holds the same obligations. But what you're talking about is about an ethical responsibility that the West and the global North has with respect to its history, but also its present. Mm -hmm. So Canada may not have a history of colonialism on the African continent or other places where historically Europe has, for instance, But it does have a mining footprint, for Mm -hmm. instance, on the Americas, which is critical and which has displaced Indigenous communities, which has caused a lot of, um, as I said, displacement, turmoil, challenges, and even human rights violations. And that's a lot of what we work on here at, at Amnesty in Canada, you know, against these affected communities and who in turn have had to move and therefore this leads to further displacement. So there is very much, I think I agree with you, with the moral duty of global North countries to be able to not only open the doors to these people who are fleeing, but I would say to end the root causes in the first instance. Mm-hmm. So there's a broader responsibility beyond opening borders there's a responsibility to commit to ending the root causes of violence, of poverty, of displacements that are uprooting people from their homes, because at the root of it, there's a desire to travel and to discover the world, which inhabits perhaps many of us. But at the root of it, the majority of these people who are fleeing, and and here I speak as one of them, as someone who has fled my own country, do not want to be displaced. They want to remain in their home countries. They live full and dignified lives. And I think it's also important to, to interrogate that narrative that, you know, refugees want to be in the global north, you know, that people who are in the global south dream of going to Canada, to the United States, to Europe, that this is their aspiration. And therefore, we have to close our borders because otherwise we will be invaded by these people who want a better life and who dream of being here. They have pretty, pretty good lies, mm-hmm. in terms of you know, a life of community, a life where they are in relationship with their loved ones, they're on their land, their ancestral lands, and they're attached to their homes. I think it really is important that we look at the linkages between displacement and extractive industries armament and the arms trade, it's really interesting that the countries that produce the largest amount of weapons are also the countries that end up uh, being yeah. the ones refusing, <laughs> closing their doors to people who have who are fleeing armed conflict. So in many ways you have the countries who are you know contributing or even causing a lot of these conflicts, then shutting their borders to those who are fleeing. These are really crucial questions that I don't think are being asked enough when we're talking about displacement. We often just stop at uh, the people who are leaving and don't ask ourselves enough why they are and what is contributing to having them leave. You look at the footprint of global North countries on climate change, it is obscene even to see that the extent to which uh, countries in the global South are having to pay the price for the carbon footprint of countries in the global north. And those who will be first affected will be women and men in their communities who have to leave because they can no longer find water, they can no longer farm their land, You know, they, they can't afford to sustain their families. So I think these are really, really crucial linkages and, and questions that we need to be um, Asking ourselves more deeply and more loudly. I'm really glad that you're doing this by by having this, you know, having this topic and having this conversation.
0: You know, we do, and, and you're absolutely right. And it's not even as if you have to dig very far to get the evidence you need to make this argument. I mean, it's, it's not a forensic argument. You can pick up any number of books. You can look at any number of articles and, and see a very direct link from the past and present of the Global north's Interventions and Behaviors uh, throughout the world to the need to care for people because of those interventions. And uh, you know I make the same argument in relation to settler colonialism that's ongoing inside the territorial borders of, of Canada. We are we settlers, I'm referring to myself here and, and other white Canadians, are the historical and contemporary beneficiaries of this of ongoing colonialism and, and, and settler colonialism. It's not a past thing. It's a present thing. And sometimes people say, "Well, you know about that, but that was before," as if the the legacies don't endure and as if the benefits don't continue to accrue for people. And so, you know, one of the things I I rush to remind people is that it's not just history; it's now. But if you want the history, go pick up David Talbot's book on the Devil's Chessboard, the the CIA history, or Vincent Bevins on the Jakarta Method, or you know, uh, Lawrence in Arabia, the Scott Anderson book, and just have a quick look at what the West has done and where these messes come from. You know, it's, it's stunning to me as I was thinking about this in, in the aftermath of the First World War and British intervention in the Middle East, just thinking that these guys just should have showed up with a compass and a ruler and a map and just said, okay, well, we're just going to draw some lines here. <laughs> you know? and, and all these years later here, we're, we're living with the consequences of that. And then you get the United Kingdom saying, well, we're going to send you know asylum seekers to Rwanda and complaining about quote unquote illegal migration. That's all by way of me sort of gently ranting and venting my spleen to get to this question now that we've constructed terms and, and and we've constructed a state system, we've constructed borders, we face global reality of conflict that's not abating, but in fact is getting worse. And one of the questions I'm asking myself and I'm hoping you can shed some light on is what what would a just global migration system, refugee system, asylum-seeking system, look like. I mean, it, how, how could we reimagine a system that is, is you know, historically and contemporarily just?
1: Mm, that's such a broad. That's a, <laughs> such a broad question and a broad project, Dave. It is, uh, but but uh, it's an exciting one, and I'm glad you're asking the question. I think. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people are wondering the same, uh, you know, the same thing, and are asking these questions in many ways, and are beginning to start to construct, you know, that not a utopia, but really uh, the kind of world that we should be living in, and certainly what we should move towards. Um, I think one of the first things to keep in mind is we need to have a proportionate responsibility of displacement. As I mentioned earlier, 85%. Of people who are forcibly displaced being in the global south, that is a profound, profoundly unjust global system. So we need, first of all, to balance that. We need to be able to balance that. And to do that, we simply have to open up borders. Mm -hmm. We have to see borders not as not as sites of criminalization and sites. Of, um you know of filtering who is worthy of being in the country or not with regards to their class and their their origin their country origin but really opening up and being inventive and creative about using resources that are available to to the people who need them the most you know we all live on one global village whether we like it or not. And until we learn to share these responsibilities collectively, that we will continue to be locked in this endless conflict. So uh, it, it would require us to have the maturity to understand that what happens to one of us happens to all of us and to think about global solutions. Uh, so, you know, that would be my, my first uh, point of entry, is really reimagining um, the refugee uh, system. And beyond uh, thinking that adding you know, 500 to the, to the cap number or 1,000 people to the cap number that we had the previous year makes us uh, somewhat, puts us in a sort of a leadership position. Uh, there is no leadership. If we're not addressing this question head on, we're not leading in any way. Leadership requires us to really measure the magnitude of this situation globally. We are, you know, as, as I said, 82 million people who are displaced around the world. This is the first in the history of humankind. And it requires that we um, think about it with this full magnitude in mind. So uh, uh, I, the global north has a huge responsibility to open up to stretch, to create and uh, expand resources, to be able to welcome people and welcome welcome them in a dignified way, uh, not bring them in as uh, to end up in forced labor or in positions that further dehumanize them, but really affords them full opportunities as human beings. And then on the other hand, it needs to get... Um, to the root causes of what's generating this displacement in the first place. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, I often say that you cannot be a country that exports uh, weapons on one end and then, you know, complain about numbers of refugees globally on the other hand, because Arms are what create conflicts and conflicts are what create refugees. So we need to be able to make this simple, these really, really simple links and connections as we we address these issues. And I think we can. It's really possible. It really is possible if we have the will, the desire, the the grit and the determination uh, to
0: to do so. I want to close out on, well, if not an optimistic point, perhaps a more hopeful point, and that's our question rather, And that's when you look around the world, do you see any movements or states or models that give you hope that in this century, uh, we can do better than we did in the last, especially given the challenge, uh, the growing challenges that we face? You know, what gives me hope? What gives me hope is perhaps this was aided
1: by technology today in the sense that we are all sort of interconnected. What gives me hope is the realization, particularly among young people and ordinary folks who typically wouldn't be concerned about what happens beyond you know their immediate surroundings, global awareness of what is happening around the world and the sense of responsibility, the sense of I, being here in Canada, wanting to better understanding, first of all, the root causes of these issues, and secondly, wanting to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see more and more people, particularly in the global north, people coming to terms with the history of their countries, as you were mentioning earlier, the history of colonialism, the ongoing injustices that are happening, and people finally connecting the dots willing to hold their governments accountable or willing themselves to to join government and to do better. So that is what gives me hope because change has always come from people power. In my experience, and especially coming from a human rights movement, I believe fundamentally in the ability of people to drive the changes that they want to see if they are organized and if they are mobilized around uh, shared ideals. That is what absolutely uh, energizes me. I look at young people uh, fighting so powerfully for uh, around climate change, holding governments accountable, creating awareness globally, um, not taking no for an answer, persevering, despite you know, often the pushbacks from big uh, corporations and being fearless as they do that. And that is incredible. And and, and we need to remember as much as uh, the times we're in seem very grim, that we've been in similar situations in the past. That's what history teaches us. And what has always changed has been the ability for people to come together, imagine a better future and, and mobilize to, to move in into action. As long as we remain aware, interested, abreast, committed, then change is possible. I think that that is uh, what we should all keep in mind. And so these conversations are fantastic because they energize us, they remind us that we're all connected and they, they give us the fuel that we need to, to keep moving forward.
0: Well, that brings us to time, but I can't think of a better point on which to end, so I'll leave it there and I will, first of all, thank you very much for joining me here. This was a fantastic, and important conversation. I'm so glad that you were able uh, to join us for it.
1: Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you as well for all the work that you do.
0: Thank you. And as always, my thanks to Aaron Reynolds, Isha Jera, and Carolyn Smith. Who make the podcast not just possible, but so much better than it would be without them? Uh, I thank them as well. And all of you who listen wherever you may be listening, especially as we ride the latest wave of COVID. I hope everybody's staying as safe and as sound as possible. And we will see you back here in tune.